So today we're talking about uh, resources. Uh, so how can we be effective curators of our resources? Well, once again, it begins with this radical idea that everything we have doesn't just belong to us. Everything we have in this world is a gift. It is from Him. And for some of us, that is difficult for us to get our heads around. Um, as I was praying for this morning, I the Lord, felt the Lord gave me a picture of a, a, a little girl standing in front of a closed door like that with her hand on the handle. And she wasn't letting anyone into this room. And I had a sense that everything that was precious to this little girl, all of her belongings were in this room. And she was holding the door so that nobody could go in and take any of her things. And I had a sense that that's how it can be with some of us. Um, when it comes to God and the things that we own, some of us uh, find it difficult to open the door on our resources to the Lord. Almost like we would expect that if we show God everything that we have, if we show God and talk to God about our bank account and our assets and everything that belongs to us, maybe God will take them from us. Can God be trusted with that department of your life? If there's any part of you that resonates with that picture, that maybe avoids the conversation with God when God comes to talk about your finances and you want to keep that room in your life closed, I want to encourage you that it is safe to open the door with God, that God is faithful over the resources that you have in your hands. If you're terrified of opening that door, I just want to encourage you that we're, we are going there today. That's exactly where we're going. We're going to fling that door open, and you're going to understand that God is faithful to walk into that place with you and to look at what you have. And you know what? He's not going to steal it. He's going to explain to you and help you to understand that every single thing in that room came from him in the first place. And he's faithful to maintain your life. So let's open our Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and starting from verse 6. For those of you who don't have one with you, I'm going to bring it up on the screen. But it's quite nice to see it in the Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and from verse 6. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. I'm going to say that again. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Powerful words, aren't they? The desire for wealth has a way of choking out life and just driving us into unhappy situations. 
That's why you can find some of the most godly and content people on earth in the developing world who have very little wealth in their hands. And you can also find some of the most desperate and dangerous people on earth in London Square Mile or on Wall Street or in Dubai or in these places where wealth is, is such a big thing. Happiness, contentment, and wealth have a funny relationship with one another. One of the most content people I think I've ever met, I met in Rwanda. Uh, when I went to Rwanda in 2012, I met um, a, in, an inspirational family. Um, we were working with one particular pastor. <laughs> It'll be me next time, don't worry. Um, we were working with one particular pastor called Pastor Gilbert. And um, he had organized the, the whole plan of what we were going to do when we were out in Rwanda. And um, he was a remarkable man, and he had a remarkable wife, and he had remarkable children. I mean, every person that I met in his family was just an inspiration to me. And I, could, I knew they were part of his family before I, I knew their surname, before I knew that they were connected with Gilbert. And it was a weird thing. Um, Gilbert picked us up, and straight away I picked up this, this man had the kind of quiet confidence and the... the, the the, the amazing, still-spirited quality of a man of God. Sometimes you can pick up the gravitas, the, the, just the quality of a spirit. And this man, without saying hardly anything, I just picked up that he was a real man of God. And um, the more I got to know him, the more I began to hang on his, hang on his words. And then uh, there was another woman at this place that we were taken to where they were preparing some food, and she was just serving some food, and she gave me a welcome. And I thought, man, it's the same kind of spirit I'm seeing on this woman. It turned out to be his wife. And then uh, as we were going through the week, different people would come in. One, um, one young lady was leading a, a worship leader's workshop where she was bringing worship leaders from all over Kigali to come together, and she was leading this wor workshop, and she was amazing. Turns out this was Gilbert's daughter, his, her, his eldest. Um, and then there was another one leading the kids' work, doing all this dance stuff with the kids, and she just had the kids eating out of her hands, and she, it, all the kids just loved this girl. Turns out that was his youngest daughter. She was only 14. And then there was this lad, um, quiet lad, just came with us wherever he could, was helping us out in whatever way. He was carrying bags, or, and he was, he was about 13, 14. Amazing guitarist. It looked a little bit like Jimi Hendrix with a big afro. Uh, but just this really sweet character. Turns out that was his younger son. Um, and uh, I could have picked all of those that were part of that same family resemblance before I knew what family they belonged to. And uh, this family were remarkable. And the reason, one of the reasons why I think this family carried such a dignity and such a, an extraordinary sense of godliness about them was because during the genocide, um, and just after the genocide, when Rwanda was in pieces, they had the opportunity to emigrate, and they didn't. Pastor Gilbert uh, and his family moved into one of the largest refugee camps just outside uh, Rwanda, where... Thousands and thousands of Rwandans were in makeshift accommodation waiting to see how the country was going to be redivided up and that, so that they could go home. And this family went to stay with their people and bring comfort and hope in any way they could during the aftermath of the genocide. Eventually, when it was safe enough to go home, um, this family moved back to Kigali. And... Uh, 
Gilbert became like a bishop, really. He, he was there to strengthen the churches. So in all sorts of denominations, he was the person that they looked to, like a spiritual father of the churches in Kigali. And, um, and that's how he went on. But do you know what? That family has lived by faith their whole lives. They have trusted God for all of their resources their whole lives. And th- they are some of the wealthiest people that I think I've ever come across. Just the sheer wealth that was dripping from their lives. They, they seem to be fearless. They seem to be content. They seem to be full of peace and full of experience of God's love and goodness. Absolutely amazing. Omri Nguyen nailed it, I think, with this, with these words. Every time, sorry, every time I take a step in the direction of generosity, I know I am moving from fear to love. I think this is something that Gilbert's family really understood. Every time I take a step in the direction of generosity, I am moving. I know I am moving from fear to love. There is no fear in generosity. When you've lived a life of generosity and self-sacrificial love like that, it's like fear has nowhere to reside anymore. There's no place for self-preservation. There's no place for hoarding. There's no place for needing to grasp whatever we can so that we've got enough for the one day. We become people who are full of the self-giving love of God. And I think that's something that has been articulated well by Henri Nguyen, something that he beautifully modeled with his own life. But something I've seen modeled in a number of places. And it's a sort of way of life that I want to understand and I want to live. Amen? That kind of self-sacrificing, yet so full and overflowing with everything I need, content with what I have and yet free to give. Isn't that where we all want to end up? Isn't that the kind of life we want to practice? So... We know that money and wealth cannot bring us life. We know this. So why does it have such a strong pull on our lives? Our possessions and our desire for things seem somehow to be spiritually charged. Our stuff has kind of spiritual tentacles that latch onto our lives if we allow it to. So much so that Jesus referred to wealth as a personified being, a demon god, if you will, with the intent of dominating human beings and forcing them to serve him. I'm just going to move that on. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, No one can serve two masters. You will hate one, and you'll love the other. You will be devoted to one, and you will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and be enslaved to money. That word money is, is, is not the word that would be used just for kind of cash, physical cash. It's the word mammon. And Mammon is, is the name of a spiritual deity. It's the name of a god of wealth. So Jesus is saying wealth can function exactly like an alternative god or spiritual deity. 
Either you serve God or you serve mammon. You can't serve both with your life. Your allegiance to one disqualifies you from giving your allegiance to the other. You have to choose which system you're going to live under. Wealth acquisition or God. You simply cannot do both. The truth is that whichever system you choose will bring out in you a very different relationship to your resources. I can't resist another Lord of the Rings depiction. Uh, Last week, I know we talked about Rivendell, but uh, (sighs) Tolkien comes up with that concept of the ring, and the ring... Uh, becomes this uh, powerful part of the story. Whoever has the ring, whoever possesses the ring, ultimately becomes possessed by the ring. They slowly become obsessed with it, and they they won't put it down, and they're holding on to it. It's mine, my own, my precious. (laughs) You know? Those who have possessed it the longest are the most controlled by it. They will do anything to possess it, including hurting those nearest to them. And it's an allegorical tale of the spiritual power of wealth and possession. And we probably know people who hold on to their wealth like this, who want to grab it at all costs, that want to preserve it at all costs, that want to uh, maximize it at all costs. Those people who are defined by the wealth that they have, people who are obsessed about what they have and are always stressfully striving to maintain it and fighting hard to have what they don't yet have. Do you know people like that? I I know one or two. I've come across quite a few in the past. And for some, it's clearly not freedom. There is a way that our wealth begins to take away our freedom. And it can be lifeless and it can be exhausting. Of course, we all probably know others that have organized their wealth in such a way that it seems idyllic as well, Um, that they have everything they could possibly want. They live in luxury, and uh, they have everybody else to do the stressful stuff of maintaining their wealth. And, you know, when you see those those images of of people living um, amazingly, of course it can can seem tempting. We can look at that and think, oh, I'd, I'd like just a little bit of that. Maybe just just some of that would be quite nice. So what would you do if someone offered you the world and you could just kick back and do nothing? If right now somebody could say, here is just two billion and uh, you have all the property of Earth to choose from and if you take this your time is your own. You no longer have to work to, to generate your own, an income or anything else. You can just do what you like. You can live out your days however you please. What would you do with it? Interesting one, isn't it? Do you know that Jesus was offered everything? Jesus was offered everything that there was, all the wealth of the world. There was a day that Jesus met the devil one-on-one, and he was... In the time of his his temptations, you can read about it in Luke chapter 4. And the devil just keeps coming at Jesus again and again, trying to win control of the life of God's Son. And you know what his biggest, one of his biggest plays was? To take him up to a mountain to show him the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all of this will be yours. It is mine 
to give it to whoever I please. You can have everything, all the wealth of the nations and all the authority of it, if you would just bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus was offered more material possession than any human has ever been offered. And he unflinchingly said, no, thank you. Jesus saw through this offer. He saw the tyranny of serving Satan and the wealth and wealth or mammon. And instead, he chose the simple freedom of serving his father. The wealth of serving his father and living content in his love was more precious to Jesus than all the riches of all the nations. That's quite something. And Jesus emerged from that confrontation 100% free from fear of lack. He was confident in his father's provision, enough to feed 5,000 people with a boy's pat lunch. That's what that confrontation brought him to. Fullness of life, as Jesus knew full well, comes through relationship with God. It comes as we develop trust in God in such a way that we can live not with closed fists holding on to everything, but with open hands to God in all things. And the Word of God is absolutely full of commands to turn away from greed and self-sufficiency and to trust in God's care over our finances. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For the Lord has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Love that verse. It's a good one to commit to memory. I think this verse describes something of a life posture. Something that we need to settle within ourselves. Something that we need to have completely pinned down within our hearts and within our minds so that we just orientate our lives in this way. Number one, refuse to love money itself. Refuse to love money itself. Whenever you feel your heart is getting tugged in that direction, where all you want is money, all you want is wealth, something is drawing you and there's, it's beginning to become an obsession in any way. Refuse to love money itself. Choose to be content with what you have. Do you know contentment is a choice? It's a choice that is easily made when you've got a global perspective. And it's a choice to be e- that is easily made when you understand that everything belongs to him and not me. But it's a choice. To, to be happy to, to be where I am. And to not need to accumulate anymore. That's enough. This is enough for me. I have acquired enough. So refuse the love of money itself. Be content with what we have. And when we make our financial choices, we make them with God. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you. That means that God is at your right hand at any moment. Whatever financial decision you have, whatever you need advice with, whatever bill comes out of the blue, and you've suddenly got to make this bill, and you're not sure you've got enough resources to meet it. Do you know what? Every single one of those are moments for a conversation with God. If you can live open-handed with God and you can show God what you have and talk to God about what you have in your life, when it gets difficult, and let's face it, it gets difficult for all of us at some point financially, right? You've got an open channel with God. You are used to having these conversations with God. 
Number four, we insist on locating our security in his promised care for us and not in our amassed wealth. We insist the, the place of my security is not going to be located in my bank account. It's not going to be located in my savings. It's not going to be located in my 17 properties in Dubai. Uh, <laughs> It's not going to be located in, in my business portfolio. You may have all of those things, and there's nothing inherently wrong with them. But where is your security located? Are you trusting in them for your security of your future, or are you trusting in God? The more you have, the harder it is, actually, to place your full trust in God, to provide for you. If you have nothing to lose, you go to God with empty hands, and you say, God, okay, it's over to you. If we can do these four things, refuse to love money for itself, be content with what we have, make our financial choices with God, and insist on locating our security in his promised care for us, then we can truly know what Jesus was talking about when he said we would be free. Jesus was so keen to set people free from the domination of wealth that he sometimes even told people to sell everything they had before following him. And sometimes we read those verses where, where he speaks to the rich young ruler and he says, uh, and the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus tells him and he says, yep, I've got all that nailed. And he says, okay, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come on, come and follow me. And we read that and go, well, that was a bit harsh. Poor guy. I don't think Jesus saw it that way. I think Jesus saw it like reaching out to a drowning man who was still holding on to gold bars that was dragging him downwards. And he said, just let it go and you'll live. This is how Jesus was with people. He didn't mince his words, he was, but he was merciful. It was a mercy for this guy. It, this wealth had control of him. And Jesus wanted to peel those tentacles off and set the man free. There may be some of us here that are better off without some of the things we strive to maintain. If there's ever anything in our lives that becomes so important that we have to stressfully try and maintain it, that we have to fight and organize our lives to maintain it, whatever it is, or to achieve it, or to succeed in it, I believe God gives us permission to let those things go. Sounds controversial, maybe, for some. But sometimes our possessions start to possess us. Sometimes they start to control our thinking. They start to control our priorities. They start to drive us. They start to rob us of our energies. They start to damage our relationships with our most significant people around us. And sometimes those things can become things that we just need to let go of. And we need God's help to discern which are the things we need to let go of and which are the things that we need to maintain. Your financial freedom and your joy depends on relationship with him not on anything that is on this earth. And sometimes freedom is too important. You've got to let things go. Here's a challenging statement. There is only one way to stay free of the love of money and the control of wealth. You have to live in the opposite spirit by giving. Put that up so you can think about it. If our resources are his anyway, 
And we have settled this within ourselves. It's not difficult to give. We understand it was never ours in the first place. Every time we give as an act of worship, it could be in our tithes and our offerings. And when we give out of generosity to causes and individuals that need support, we are declaring our freedom in Christ over the power of mammon. Amen? Giving breaks through this spiritual hold that wealth tries to have over us. It's by the discipline of giving that we declare something different. We declare we belong to a different system. We're not consumers anymore. We're curators. We're those who are here to invest in the world around us, who are here to to live open-handed with God and be free with God to look after this world and people and all sorts of causes with God in a free way. God does something in us as we start to give. It's, it, it, it does more in us than it does to the people that we give to. It's amazing. Sometimes uh, when we're struggling, when we're feeling like we've not got enough, to give can actually set, off, set us free in our thinking and in our spirits. Just, it doesn't have to be a huge amount. It could just be something small. If we're starting to fret about our finances, just find a way to give something with God. And it's amazing how it just frees us up. We find that as we begin to give, we have an immunity to this seductive power of wealth. And a peace comes. If you can begin to practice giving as a lifestyle, you can expect the peace of God to come in, in a, in a moving into your life, in a habitual kind of way. I think the peace of God that comes through his commitment to us is way beyond anything that amassed wealth can ever give us. I remember when um, Mary and I first started to practice giving when we were very first married. We were in our early 20s, and in a way, it was easier back then because we had so little. We had so little to lose. And it was a perfect place to start. When we were first married, I was an apprentice carpenter, and um, I was on a, salary, a grand salary of £4.50 an hour. <sighs> uh, it was hard. Thank goodness that Mary was a newly qualified teacher, otherwise we'd never have been able to pay the rent. Um, but we, we didn't have very much coming in. We, let's just say we lived very simply. And we were extraordinarily happy at the same time. Uh, we had an idea that if we start giving now, well, we've got only a little bit, we might just be in the habit so that when we have more later on in life, which we will, I'm sure, one day, um, <laughs> when we have more later on in life, if we become millionaires, then we'll still be faithful to God. We'll have cultivated this practice, practice in our lives we'll be already used to handling our finance with God. That sounds pretty simple, right? Well, yeah, it was. But in another way, it wasn't always easy either. Because we didn't have much money coming in. We could have easily said, look, when we get to that point, when we've got a bit more coming in, when we can see an obvious surplus, when we can see that 
that we've got a disposable income of any kind, then we can give to God. But right now, we've got just enough to pay the bills. We could have easily justified it that way. We prayed about it, and we prayed about where to start. And we felt led to start in the same place as many as you. We began with the practice of tithing, to give to God the first few fruits of everything that came in. The first 10% of everything that came into us, we presented back to God joyfully. We sat down at our kitchen table, and we got out our pay slips, and we worked out what our combined income was, and we set up our standing order to our church, and we never looked back. And I can stand before you today, having tested this out with Mary for 18 years, and tell you that God has never let us down. Not once. He has blessed us in so many ways. He has provided for us miraculously, many times. And when we've made mistakes, and when we've struggled financially, we've always felt that we can talk to him and receive from him because we have this open relationship with God when it comes to our resources. And we wouldn't swap it for the world. There is peace that comes from living open-handed with God. Malachi 3.10 says, test me in this. I think it's the only place in the whole of Scripture where God says, test me, put me to the test, I dare you. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it. Try it. Put me to the test. Malachi 3.10. It's like our father is saying, go on. I dare you. Trust me with your finances and see what happens to your life. So I don't care if you have £1,000 a month coming in or £1,000 a day coming in. The principle is the same. Insist that God has the first fruits of your finances as a declaration of your faith and of your freedom. And then just see what happens to your heart. And let him speak into what you do with your money. When you have a financial decision to make, let God have a voice in what you do with your money. When he says save, it's because he's got plans and purposes that he's preparing for at a later date. If he says give, we can say how much. Because it's all his anyway, and he'll cover it. It's so much more fun than living in a tight-fisted way. We've had moments when we have shared what we have with someone to bless them, to take part in the answer to someone else's prayer, only to find that God has gone before us and given us more back in another way, sometimes in the same day. In the past, we've prayed for finances, and others have been prompted to give the exact amount that we've been praying for. And when that check lands on your doorstep, it means so much more than just cash. It's the Father's love and the Father's commitment to your life landing on the doorstep, landing into your life. It's so powerful. It just lifts you and brings you closer to God. I remember when God dropped it into my heart to... Um, support the community cafe down at John's church, St. John's Church. And um, 
it didn't really make financial sense for us as a church to support a, a, an initiative like that at the time. We already give over 10% of what comes in here away to missions and to outreach. We do that as a, as a spiritual practice. Whatever comes in, we want to give it the first fruits away again. It's just part of, of what we like to do. But when that prompt from God came, it was a year when the funds were a little bit tight. And you know what? Our finance team all went to ask God what he thought about it. And we were in agreement that this is something that God wanted to do. And as we shared with St. John's that this was our intention, we realized that God had so much more in mind than just funding. This pledge was concrete proof for them that God was answering their prayers. And that God was with them in this, this venture that they had started to imagine that God might help them with. And also, it deepened the friendship between the two churches. You can't put a price on that. We never would have imagined that that was what was going on behind the scenes. But you know what the most fun bit is for us? The very month that that standing order started to go out to St. John's, a bigger standing order came into this church, completely out of the blue, and it was significantly bigger than what was going out. Isn't that amazing? Why am I telling you all this? Because I want you to remember that we cannot give outgive God. We can't outgive Him. We can give pretty big, but I can guarantee you He will win every time. His pockets are way deeper than ours. I dare you, says God. Test me in this, says the Lord. Be free and let me care for you. Soul. This teaching series was designed to provoke us all to make some freshly inspired choices, to throw off this consumer society delusion, to take up our responsibility of care as God's people, and to become even more determined to live free with God in a broken generation. And I think it's time to dare to live by, by the word of God and to seek to live out the values that God has been looking for in his people all along. So my prayer is this. May God help every one of us, just one careful decision at a time, to use this world carefully, to take real care of the people around us instinctively, to steward our time so gratefully, and to steward the resources that he has entrusted to us as part of our relationship with him. And in this way, we are invited to be part of a countercultural society, one that is emerging all over the earth, walking with a wisdom that is not of this world, beautiful in its choices, and looks a lot like Jesus Christ. It's a new society that God has been searching for and under which the world can once again thrive. Amen.